So Money is brought to you by CNET, the site that shows how to navigate change all around us. So Money episode 1378, the best investment moves to make right now with Adam Cecil, author of Where the Money Is. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. You know, over the last hundred years, American stocks have been the surest way to, to grow wealthy slowly over time. So you just have to ask yourself, do you believe that, you know, in 5, 10, 15, 20 years, American business is going to be more profitable, more prosperous or not? Mm-hmm. If you think the answer is no, then you shouldn't be in the stock market. If you think the answer is yes, then you need to own a piece of that action. Welcome to So Money, everybody. I'm Farnoosh Tarabi. You may be wondering what to do with your investments right now. And the short answer is do nothing. Our guest today is Adam Cecil. He's the author of the very new book, Where the Money Is, Value Investing in the Digital Age. Adam is a successful investor and he contributes to Barron's and Fortune Magazine. This book offers modern investors what they need most, a fresh value-based guide to making money in the stock market right now, which as we know is dominated by technology stocks. But rather than walk through how to stock pick during this episode, Adam and I talk about what to make of the current stock market volatility, his definition of value investing versus growth investing, why it's not a wise move to make any moves in your portfolio right now, even though you may be concerned about the direction of the stock market. And we get into crypto because, well, I was curious what he thought about this emerging asset class. An important and timely episode with Adam Cecil. Here we go. Adam Cecil, welcome to So Money. Thank you, Farnoosh. Thanks for having me. Congratulations on your new book, Where the Money Is. (laughs) I appreciate it. (laughs) I can't wait to find that out. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, let's get into it. Yes, the subtitle, Value Investing in the Digital Age. Before we dig into it, I just would love to get your take on all of the frenzy we're seeing in the market right now, S&P 500, 20% off its recent high or recent, I should say, in the last, you know, most recent high, high, I guess, pre-pandemic. So what do you think? A lot of people are panicking. Mm -hmm. Often people ask me, does this mean we're going to be in a recession? And I say, well, you're looking at the wrong barometer. Uh But what do you think? Well, uh, you know, I've been doing this 25 years for Noosh, so I've seen my share of major and maxi crises. And look, they're never fun in the moment, and I'm as human as everybody else. So uh, I compare it to sort of combat. You never really get used to bullets whistling around your head, but um, but you do, you know, you do learn how to fire and maneuver during uh, difficult times. And as you've said in previous podcasts, you know, Times that are down, you at least want to hold and or think about buying because, as you said, the market goes up over time. And, you know, as I say in the book, every crisis is different in in its particulars, but there's one constant, which is that the essential narrative boils down to this. The world is going to end. And, 
you know, so far it hasn't. You I'm know? so glad you're optimistic, at least. Well, yeah, I don't think the world's going to end. That's the good news. Um, you know, but in the financial crisis, you know, the financial system was melting down. And in COVID, it was, you know, that no one was going to transact business with anyone ever. And, you know, these, these kind of situations set you up for a wonderful binary decision because either the world is going to go to hell in a handbasket finally, or we're going to muddle through. Mm-hmm. So I'm voting for the latter. And, uh, and I'm very optimistic, actually, about, you know, my stocks in particular going forward. Hmm. I would love to learn more about how you're investing these days. You have a new value investment paradigm. But before we talk about the new paradigm, what was the older model that you trusted and built in many ways your business, um, became a name in the industry? And and when we talk about value investing, which Mm -hmm. is what your books are all about, how do you define that these days? Well, historically, value investing is a hundred-year-old construct started by a scholarly guy named Ben Graham, who was, a, you know, sort of a prodigy at Columbia University as a young man, and had to go work on Wall Street um, to pay the bills. His father was dead, and he was the the breadwinner for his his uh, mom and 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 his uh, siblings, and so. He came to a Wall Street that was filled with speculation. You know, one of his early jobs was uh, taking bets on uh, the 1916 presidential election. It was it was perfectly legal for a, a New York Stock Exchange listed brokerage house to to play bookie on the 1916 presidential election. And he said, this is crazy. He was statistically minded and, and he needed to make a living. He did not need to speculate. He didn't have the money to speculate. So he set up this system where basically by reading financial uh, statements, he could sort of tease um, misvaluation out of the market. So while others were going on sentiment, he was triangulating between price and value. And the way he did it was to focus on hard assets, you know, inventory, factories, uh, receivables. This was this was what I call value 1.0, paying attention to what what a company owned what it could liquidate its assets for. And it worked in the very crazy speculative time of Ben Graham. Then, of course, it really worked in the Depression when many, many companies were selling well below their liquidation value. So his prize student was uh, Warren Buffett, who uh, came out of Columbia Business School, having learned from Graham this system. And he changed it in the late 20th century to one that was much more focused on business quality. You know, the, the world after World War II is much more stable than the crazy uh, Wall Street of Ben Graham. And so he came across businesses like Coca-Cola and Gillette that, um, you know, had durable franchises and could kind of grow earnings and profits to the sky be precisely because they were insulated from competition because they had a competitive edge or what Buffett would call a moat. So that's value 2.0. And I use these systems successfully in the first 15 or 20 years of my career. And then, as I say in the book, my system five or six years ago rather suddenly stopped working and I needed to reevaluate. What wasn't working any longer? Well, especially the first method wasn't working for Noosh. The, the, the hard asset-based uh, um, uh, approach was not working. And more broadly, you know, focusing on legacy companies that were statistically cheap and I'm using air quotes, uh, what was not working and is not working uh, in, in this digital age because, you know, the world has changed and business quality is so important these days. 
And we're at such a pivotal point in the economy that it really is only a slight exaggeration to say that as a company, you're either on the right side of the digital divide or you're on the wrong side. So freight car companies, uh, you know, oil and gas exploration companies, those will do okay. But I don't think anyone believes that, you know, um, fossil fuels, for example, has a long and prosperous future ahead of it. So you don't want to really be involved in those sectors long term. I know they're doing quite well in the short term, but long term, you know, tech is where the money is. Mm-hmm. And so with that thesis, you're probably not surprised to see that socially responsible investments, now that we have the data and the, you know, at least now what, 20 years worth of data to look at and, and say, this is actually a winning sector and probably and will only continue to thrive, as you point out, fossil fuels become, well, extinct, hopefully, that one, one can hope. Right. Yeah. I mean, look, I, I don't use any specific ESG screen. I use a good business screen. And what I say in in the book is, you know, companies like Google, for example, or Alphabet, you know, they naturally understand what their customers want and they don't want polluting industries. They don't want them to exploit their workers. So I don't explicitly use ESG uh, governance screens, but I generally want companies that are on the right side of history and treat their employees and, and shareholders and stakeholders fairly. Mm-hmm. Now, you have to understand, I think you know this, a lot of our audience, we're not picking stocks, right? Mm-hmm. We're not cherry picking. We often are investing in our company-sponsored retirement accounts. We have brokerage accounts, maybe a little bit of Robinhood trading going on out there. But as I like to think, maybe I'm uh, naive. I like to think that it, that is just maybe more for fun and right. or they're putting the majority of their long-term investments let's hope not right. what's your message to young investors today or I shouldn't say even just young like new investors because as I'm learning sometimes the new investors are the older investors they're yeah. you know they're getting a late start for a variety of reasons yeah i think my message would be quite simple and the same message that ben graham had 100 years ago and warren buffett had 50 years ago and Peter Lynch had 30 years ago when he wrote his investment bestsellers, which is that, you know, over the last hundred years, American stocks have been the surest way to, to grow wealthy slowly over time. So you just have to ask yourself, do you believe that, you know, in five, 10, 15, 20 years, American business is going to be more profitable, more prosperous or not? Mm-hmm. If you think the answer is no, then you shouldn't be in the stock market. If you think the answer is yes, then you need to own a piece of that action. So stocks over time, over the last 100 years, have gone up roughly 9% a year, which means you double your money every eight years. So, you know, if you have 15, 20, 30 years, that's a lot of doubles for the power of compounding to work. So my first message would be the stock market has been and will continue to be the place to be. just because it's a collection of a businesses and American businesses are the best on earth mm-hmm. and know how to make money. Now, if you want to get more granular, then you say, well, okay, stock market, I could, you know, take the average and just buy an S&P fund. Or I could say, well, what sectors are going to do the best? And, and inside of those sectors, what companies really have an edge? You know, most companies are doomed to fail or at least to be mediocre because competition is so vicious like you see this with Netflix now, right? Like everyone said, oh, Netflix is the leader and so forth. Well, you got a half a dozen people 
They're going to spend billions and billions of dollars a year trying to nip at their heels. And that's capitalism in a nutshell. That's why it works, because everyone's uh, competing to uh, please the consumer, essentially. Um, now, there are a couple of companies out there, though, that have moats, that have this Buffett concept of moat around them. And I would argue that Alphabet, which is down big today, has a moat. They have 95% share in search. Like, who's going to mm-hmm. catch them? Like, you and I going to start a search company? I mean, Amazon tried, failed. Microsoft mm-hmm. tried, failed. I mean, so so I personally recommend what Peter Lynch recommended a generation ago, which is identify superior businesses, mm-hmm. buy them in the stock market, and then hold them and let the power of compounding do the work. Because even a business that grows two or three percentage points a year faster than the market, that compounding will add up over time and make you much wealthier. So Alphabet, i.e. Google, yeah. uh, clearly a favorite of yours. And, and I liked how you walked us through the logic there. Can you give us some other examples? And maybe the ones that we aren't already talking so much about, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. The Facebooks, the Teslas sure. of the world. Uh, sure. Not to say that those are your favorites, but we tend to, we think of market weight too. Those those stocks are the heavy hitters. They're the bellwethers now. Forget. Yeah. I mean, also like, when is the Dow composite going to change? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, the, 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 Dow, show. the Dow is, you know, is always behind the curve. You know, they're always... They're always trying to catch up and they only have 30 stocks. So they, it's hard to, hard to get it right. But you're right. They're, they, they are always behind. But look, I, it's in some ways, it's quite simple for Noosh. And, and you almost need to think like a 12-year-old. Like, okay, stocks are the place to be historically. So I should either buy an index or should I should try to, I should try to um, find superior businesses. Okay, how do I find superior businesses? Well, identify ones that obviously have a competitive edge. I've given you Alphabet. You know, Amazon obviously has a competitive edge in e-commerce. And then there, as you say, there are dozens of others that are lower, you know, sort of second tier, smaller tech companies. So two that I like a lot are Intuit, which does TurboTax and QuickBooks, and then Adobe, which, you know, you know, owns the sort of, you know, creative space, online creative space. I mean, if you're making marketing tools in, in, on the internet, you're going to Adobe. It's kind of like Google and search. So you almost have to think extremely naively. You know, I think people overcomplicate the thing. In terms of as, as an investor, when you see the signs of a recession, um, how does that change your approach to your investment portfolio, if at all? Not at all for Noosh. I mean, you know, you, <clears throat> you know, we're going to have bad times in the stock market. You know, I got bad news for you. You know, it ain't it ain't it ain't all going to be a walk in the park. And, you know, investors who can't stomach occasional downturns like the one they're having, we're having really have no business being in the market. I mean, I hate to be harsh about it, but you just need to sort of develop a strong stomach because this is. Mm-hmm. This is in the nature of markets. Um, so, you know, my over the last five years, my clients' money has almost tripled. And now we're down probably in line with the market, maybe a little more. So now we're, we're, we're going, we're gone from almost tripled to more than doubled. Like, what's the problem? You know, especially mm-hmm. when we own businesses like Alphabet and Amazon, like in five or 10 years, are they going to be bigger and more prosperous? 
almost virtually certain to be the case. So, so we're compounding, we're growing. It's just not in a straight line. And, um, you know, recessions happen, you know, life happens. They, they happen over a dozen times since World War II. But the good news is that periods of growth are more common and they last longer. And- Correct. That's right. And you get into this whole, you know, behavioral uh, economics and behavioral theory where, you know, the pain of losing is so much greater than the the happiness of winning. So, yes. you know, you go from, uh, you know, having $100,000 to having $300,000 and then your $300,000 on paper temporarily becomes 250 and you're freaking out. Mm-hmm. Like, wait a sec, you started with 100. Yeah. Like things that sounds work. like a normal person to me. Right. And you do have to train yourself. In this. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is not normal behavior. And I've had 25 years to train myself in, you know, what Buffett calls being inversely emotional. And I give some tips in in my book about how to how, how amateurs and pros, because mm-hmm. pros need it as, as well, how how we can train ourselves to be tough, basically tough and stay the course. When you talk about value investing, and I've had a little bit of experience reporting on you know the financial markets early in my career, you almost have to always talk about it in the context too of well or or against growth stocks, growth mm-hmm. sector, mm-hmm. and and um, I bring this up because as many of us then go back to let's say our retirement plans to make sure we're diversified and that we've got the good allocation that. We invest in value, but also in growth. And, mm. and so maybe spend a little bit of time talking about how you define growth sector and sure. where does that fit into this paradigm, if at all? Sure. Well, I hate to blow your listeners' minds, <laughs> but the dichotomy between growth and value is one of the, the red herrings in the finance industry. And you know, I understand how it, how the, the distinction came about. It came about precisely when, you know, people like me were trying to explain to investors, you know, we invest this way or we invest that way. But the best investors, you know, Warren Buffett being the best example, say there is no distinction between growth and value. Hmm. Growth is a component of value. All things being equal, more growth is better than less growth, Correct. So it's just becomes then it becomes a question of what are you paying for that growth? So I think it's a huge false distinction, hmm. especially in today's digital age for Noosh. And, and this is really what caused me to write this book is, you know, <laughs> like when, what, when is Amazon going to return to normal? Like what's normal for Amazon? Like they sell as much stuff as Walmart, like in 10 years, What's that going to look like? Are they going to be selling as much stuff as Walmart? So, okay, they're a growth company, but they're also enormously valuable because they're growing and because their growth is protected, so to speak, by the moat. You know, I say in the book, don't confuse a growth company with a valuable company. You know, look at GoPro, you know, oh, the selfie sticks and, oh, those are so cool. Yeah, well, everybody else and their brother figured out how to make a selfie stick and their profits imploded because they had no moat around their business. But Amazon has a moat around its business, which is no one's going to be able to copy their infrastructure. So they're enormously valuable because they're going to grow a lot and their growth will be protected. Right. If that makes sense. I wonder if the internet muddied that, that bifurcation a little bit because 
25 years ago, Amazon was a growth company. It wasn't established like Walmart. Yes, that's right. That's an excellent point. And, And I make that point in the book. I say that you know, Alphabet and Amazon are the General Motors and Coca-Cola of our generation. Mm. You know, they are here to stay. They are battleships and they are going to grow for probably another generation. So they're enormously valuable franchises precisely because they're, you know, they have such a long runway of growth. In many ways, they are analogous to what when Buffett was buying Coke in the 80s. You know, it's uh, like who's going to compete against Coke, mm. you know? Who's going to compete against Google? It's it's impossible. Some are betting on crypto as the next <laughs> yes. Amazon and Google. And, well, and people are making that that similarity between where we were with dot-com in the late 90s and early 2000s and where we are with cryptocurrency today. What is your pulse saying? Well, well let's 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 be let's play this out with a Socratic exercise. <laughs> I have no answers, Adam. <laughs> yes, you do. Yes, you do. You're you're a smart woman, Farnoosh. What is cryptocurrency? What is Bitcoin, for example? What is Bitcoin? It's a digital currency. Right. That is I agree with that that statement. What what is the function of a currency? It's a form of trade. An exchange. Right. Mm-hmm. Means of exchange. exchange value. Mm-hmm. And a storehouse of value, right? Mm-hmm. Is Amazon a means of exchange and a storehouse of value? Insofar as it takes my money. Every three hours. Right, right. No, see, currency, a cryptocurrency may be an awesome invention. You know, I'm not a crypto hater, but... At the end of the day, it's just a currency like any other currency. Like, mm-hmm. would I invest in the dollar? No. Why? Because the dollar is kind of inert. It's stagnant. It can't open new locations. It can't grow profits. It can't add customers. Bitcoin can't add customers. In fact, it, it is through its bylaws, it's, it's, it's fixed in terms of the number of coins. Adobe has no fixity in terms of how many customers it can serve and how much money it can make. You know, Intuit doesn't cap the number of uh, QuickBooks customers it can serve. So these are dynamic, growing, changing businesses, whereas a currency, whether it's gold or the dollar or crypto, just kind of sits there and looks at you. (laughs) The blockchain, though, has some legs to it, wouldn't you? Sure. The blockchain sounds very useful, Mm -hmm. but... No one's saying that Bitcoin is going to value is going to grow because blockchain company ABC is going to use it and it's going to grow. No one's making that argument. This new era of investing that we're in, Adam, we have a lot of new, young, novice investors who their first investment was because of a meme. Right. Right. And. And then, of course, with the technology where it's at, with the Robin Hoods of the world, investing on a whim. Uh, is very easy to do. And and so do you think that this has been helpful or hurtful in the long run to the name, to investing? You know, because on the one hand, you want to get people in, but the method by which we've been doing it, the platforms by which we've been giving, the tools are not always, how do I say? Salutary. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So what's your... How do you feel about all of this? And, and uh, yeah, I just wanted to touch on that a little bit, too. It's, it's a good question and a complicated question. Um, you know, as I say, and where the money is, I have no problem stipulating that the stock market is a game of sorts. 
Like I, it's one reason I enjoy it. It's, it's challenging, but it's, you have to understand the nature of the game. It's a very long-term game. It's a game about who has the edge, you know, over five, 10, 15 years, the short term, anything can happen. So if you want to play that, that's kind of like roulette and you might as well go into a casino and I go into casinos. I like playing in casinos, but I understand the rules and I understand the nature of the game. So to, to, to gamify the stock market via Robinhood and the meme stocks and stuff without doing your sort of Ben Graham due diligence and thinking through which business has an edge is really does a disservice to, to all investors, young and old, because it, it, it misunderstands the game. And, you know, there's, there's so many speculators who've lost fortunes, you know, by playing essentially a game of musical chairs, you know, and they, they just wait until the last chairs and then, and then, but then they miss it, you know? So I tell the story in the book of Jesse Livermore, this famous speculator who made his fortunes speculating on this and speculating on that. And then, but then he lost it a couple of times too. And in 1940, he put a bullet in his head in the cloakroom of the Sherry Netherland hotel. Cause he just couldn't take it anymore. So yeah. You want to get rich slow. You don't want to, you know, if, and if you want, if you want excitement, you know, go to your local casino or, or get on your sports betting app. It's legal in New York. Yeah. Uh, throw some darts. Go for it. Yeah. Do something else. So what I've learned in our short but jam-packed time together is that, one, you got to think like a 12-year-old. Yes. I can do that. Good. Think of growth as a component of value, not as two separate things. We didn't talk about this, but I read in your book that you call um, one of the ways that you characterize investing, there is no deadline in investing. I like that a lot because I think it's a hopeful statement that you can, my interpretation of that is that it's not about your timing, but your time in the market that's important. Yes, Yes, I think that's a very good insight. And, you know, if you look back at previous crises, uh, in quotes, like the financial crisis and uh, the dot-com bust and uh, and the pandemic, and you look back at those as a, a long-term chart of the stock market, they really look like little kind of valleys. You know, they're just like little, little valleys on the way to, you know, long-term growth of American business, which is all the stock market is. So, it really helps to just take the very long term view and kind of, you know, set, settle into your you know traces and, and just get rich slow, basically. Adam Cecil, really great to have you. Given all the noise that's going on right now and the, you know, the stress and the uncertainty, I think it's important to revisit history yes. and provide some logical advice yes some calming advice. Really appreciate your book and your visit to So Money. Everybody check out Where the Money Is, Value Investing in the Digital Age. Thanks a lot, Adam. My pleasure, Farnoosh. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much to Adam for joining us. His book, again, is called Where the Money Is. The link is in our podcast notes. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. Back here on Friday, answering your money questions. If you have any questions or thoughts for me, please email me, farnushedsomoneypodcast.com. You can also direct message me on Instagram. And as always, if you like this show, please leave a review, subscribe, and share. I hope your day is so money.